Welcome to the Sunday School lesson from Joelton Church of the Nazarene. My name is John Mills, and it's good to be with you today. We are continuing our lessons from the book of Romans. These lessons come from the Nazarene Adult Quarterly for the spring quarter of 2021. And today's lesson is from April 18th. The title, Saved in Hope. And we're going to be looking at the second part of Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 32. But before we get into the lesson, let's begin with a word of prayer. I want to pray together with you Paul's prayer for the Philippians from Philippians 1, 9 through 11. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. Now, Paul has spent the first part of Romans chapter 8 giving us this grand description of the life that's available to us, the life that's in the realm of the Spirit. He begins at the very beginning, verse 1, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. And then he follows that up with verse 17. We are, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. And so Paul has presented this, this grand vision of the life that's possible for us. But you can imagine those listening to Paul, they start bringing up some questions here. You know, Paul, if this is true, if this is reality, why do we see all of this suffering around us? Why is there so much hardship? Why is there so much going wrong? And so if Paul wants to be taken seriously, he needs to address this. Now, the problem of evil and why evil exists, this has puzzled man throughout our existence as humans. Basically, if God is all good, then he should not want or allow any kind of unfair suffering of evil. If God is all-powerful, then he has the power to eliminate, to prevent this suffering. So, if there is an all-good, all-powerful God, then evil shouldn't exist. There should be no unfair suffering. The problem is we know that evil does exist. Now, the skeptic answers this by saying, well, this is proof that there really is no God. Philosophers and other religions have dealt with this in three basic ways. First of all, they may deny that there is actually evil in the world. You know, there are groups such as the Buddhists who would say that evil suffering is just an illusion. There are those who would deny that God is all good. You know, there are, are polytheistic religions that have good gods and bad gods. Uh, you have groups such as the Zoroastrians. And there are groups who would deny that God is all-powerful. But Paul's response to this is to address all three of these misunderstandings. He tells us that we misunderstand the connection between evil and suffering, so we don't really understand evil. We misunderstand what it means for God to be good, and we misunderstand what it means for God to be powerful. And that's what we want to look at in this lesson today. 
So Paul begins by stating that we are misunderstanding the connection between suffering and evil. Now, our view is evil is undeserved suffering, suffering without a purpose. We see things such as the 74-year-old John Weissert. He was shot and killed last week with seven others at the FedEx facility in Indianapolis. Or we think of the 39 people who were killed on January 12th when the countries of the Philippines, when its most active volcano erupted. We think of the trial this week of the man who had killed George Floyd. And so we see suffering. Suffering is a sign, we believe, that something is wrong. We can't see how a loving God will permit evil suffering. But Paul's message is, first of all, suffering is not a sign that something has gone wrong. Paul tells us suffering is an inherent part of the design of this world. It's actually built into God's plan. Romans 8, 17 sets it out very plainly. Paul says, we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. So Paul is telling us, Suffering is not an aberration. Suffering is built into the design. Now, suffering also is not evil because God redeems suffering by giving it a purpose, by having it accomplish something good. Now, we recognize that suffering that produces something worthwhile is not evil. In fact, we would regard it as a positive, a good. For example, we may suffer when we exercise, But we don't think of that as suffering because we realize it's doing us good. When a a mother gives birth to a child, she would not necessarily consider that suffering because of the child that she gains. So, Paul wants us to know we share in Christ's suffering, but it has a purpose that we may share in His glory. And he goes on to say, the glory that will be revealed in us will make everything worth it, will be far Uh, more valuable to us than the suffering that we go through now. Now, even when suffering is undeserved, when suffering is inflicted on us without our having a choice, it is not by definition evil. There is such a thing as vicarious suffering. It's God's plan. It's a way that He allows us to participate in His redemptive efforts. Now, we would recognize that if we suffer because of our own actions, that this is not evil. We would call it justice when you suffer because you've done wrong. When we suffer willingly on someone else's behalf, we would not consider it evil. But if we suffer uh, by having others suffering put upon us, we consider this evil. But Paul gives two examples here of how God allows us to participate in His redemptive efforts through vicarious sufferings, when sufferings are inflicted on us because of what other people have done. The first example he gives us is that of Christ Himself. Paul tells us that we are co-heirs with Christ. We are to share in His sufferings. But we have to think about what those sufferings were. All of Christ's sufferings were vicarious. They were inflicted upon Him because of the sin of man. Isaiah painted this picture of the suffering servant. 
to tell us that Christ was bruised for our iniquities. So Paul wants us to know this vicarious suffering is not evil. It is God at work. Christ was an essential part of God's redemptive efforts. And then Paul goes on to say that creation itself, this physical world, is subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but it's given over to frustration by God's will to be part of God's redemptive efforts, to contribute to the freedom and the glory of the children of God. So we can see that vicarious suffering, when we are subjected to suffering because of others, when we suffer on behalf of others, this is not necessarily evil, but it's a way that God allows for us to be part of His plan of redemption. God is using us to renew all of creation. Paul writes in Colossians 1.24, Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Now, we also have to realize that suffering can be part of God's prevenient grace, that God can allow us to suffer to be a part of his plan, to be a part of the way that his grace is channeled into our world, even for those who do not know him. We undergo a certain amount of suffering as an inevitable consequence of this world, of the way this world is designed. When God gave man a free choice, it made it inevitable that there would be suffering to go along with it. When we participate in this suffering, we are participating in God's plan that allows freedom to rule in our world. Now, Paul writes in part two of this lesson, that we misunderstand what it means for God to be good. Our view is that an all-good God would not want us to suffer. Therefore, if God was all-good, He would not allow evil. Being all-good would require God to prevent evil, to stop evil. Paul writes here, And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. Now, our problem is we may not know what the good actually is. We often equate good with experiencing pleasure or avoiding pain. We assume that this is what good means, but this is a very short-sighted view of goodness. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Think of a parent who has to take their two-year-old child to the doctor. The doctor needs to lance an infection and the parent is required to hold the child still for what is a very painful experience. Think of what the child experiences. The child doesn't understand why the pain is there. All the child knows is that this is his mother, this is his father, this is someone that should be preventing pain, and all of a sudden they are helping the doctor inflict pain. They have no idea that this pain is necessary, that it will prevent a much larger pain in the future. Paul tells us in all things, God is working for the good of those whom he has called. Now, 
their good, our good, comes from the fact that God has a purpose, a purpose for us. God has a whole process in place here. Paul tells us that he predestines, he calls, he justifies, he glorifies. All of this is for the purpose of conforming us to the image of his Son. This is what it means to be good. This is our good. When we are formed into the image of God, when we take on Christ's likeness, really when we become holy. A.W. Tozer writes that the emphasis of the New Testament is not upon happiness, but on holiness. And this was a theme of his, that God is much more interested in our holiness than in our happiness. Now, the paradox is when we pursue holiness, we achieve happiness. But when we pursue happiness, we don't find happiness and we don't find holiness. John Piper writes, Holiness is newness of the human heart that no longer finds sin and self more desirable than God and goodness. To become holy is to become happy in God. And the psalmist Asaph writes in Psalm 73, But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. In his view, whatever draws him nearer to God is our ultimate good no matter what the other effects may be. The nearness of God is what we should be aiming for. He writes, Whom have I in heaven but you? And beside you, I desire nothing on earth. So we can see that we often don't know what it means, uh, what our good would necessarily mean. But it means that God is using us. It means that God is drawing us near to Him. So God redeems suffering. He makes it for our good by using suffering as a way of drawing near to us. When God is near, this is our ultimate good. Paul writes here, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us through groans, wordless groans. So the picture we have is the Spirit is entering into our suffering, entering into our pain, groaning together with us, giving voice to our pain, to our suffering. William Blake writes in his poem, Songs of Innocence, Think not thou can sigh a sigh, and thy Maker is not by. Think not thou canst weep a tear, and thy Maker is not near. Oh, He gives to us His joy, that our grief he may destroy. Till our grief is fled and gone, he doth sit by us and moan. Now, suffering plays a crucial role in bringing us near to God and directing our hope heavenward. When we suffer, we realize God is our hope. God is our resource. Now, in part three of this, Paul tells us that we misunderstand what it means for God to be all-powerful. Our view about power, we see power as the ability to smash our enemies, to obliterate those who oppose us. And our view is, if God is all-powerful, then why doesn't He get rid of these evil people, these people that are causing so much suffering? Why wouldn't God vanquish even Satan and his demons? Scott Samuelson is a philosophy professor 
And he was discussing this issue of evil and why evil is allowed with one of his students. Now, this is the idea that God must not be all-powerful if he allows evil to exist. But the student provided him with a different kind of understanding. Scott writes, She wondered if our normal way of conceiving of power was wrong. We wonder why God didn't manifest his power by preventing some evil. But maybe power is in fact synonymous with love. And this is Paul's message to us, that this student is on to something here. Instead of the cross being God at his weakest, in reality, the cross is God achieving his greatest victory, God demonstrating ultimate power. And so Paul's message for us is that we misunderstand what it means for God to be powerful. We don't understand what true power is. God's power cannot be separated from his love. God's essence is love, his holiness, his very godness. So God's power is unlike anything that we think of as power. Now, Paul has spent the last several verses speaking about the, the circumstances of our daily lives. And he's very realistic. He speaks about suffering. He spends a lot of time in these verses describing the different groanings that are taking place. He writes, We ourselves groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship. Then he writes, The Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And even creation itself. Paul writes, We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Now, someone has said, groaning is the glue that holds this entire section together. Groaning is this deep inner response to suffering. And so, Paul is not dismissing any of this. He sums up this entire section by posing the question, what then shall we say in response to these things? So Paul is addressing reality here. He understands the reality of living in this world. But for Paul, there can be only one response to this issue of suffering and groaning. Now, those who were hearing Paul were asking, doesn't our suffering, doesn't this contradict or negate the idea of a God who's in charge, a God who is powerful to save? Paul's answer is to point to the cross. He writes, He, God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? What Paul is saying is, the cross is the ultimate demonstration of God's power over sin and God's power over suffering and evil. The cross is the ultimate expression of the love of God, love triumphing over all. And he says, this love will continue to triumph so that we are given all things. It will provide for the total redemption of this world. When the world looks at the cross, it sees weakness. It sees impotence in the face of evil. It sees evil as being victorious on an epic scale. But Paul is saying, This is a total misunderstanding of the cross. The cross is the ultimate expression of the power of love. Colossians 2.15, Paul writes, 
And having disarmed the authorities and powers, he, Christ, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So Paul is telling us, when you're overwhelmed by the suffering that's all around you in this world, when you are beginning to doubt whether God has the power to do anything about the evil we find, look to the cross. When you understand what the cross means, when you can see the true power of the cross, you cannot doubt that this God, this God who sacrificed His own Son on the cross, will do everything that He promised, will make us His heirs, co-heirs with Christ. Really, the cross represents the ultimate in self-restraint. We look at the world around us and we ask, you know, why doesn't God do something? Why is God restraining himself? Why is he remaining silent? Philip Yancey writes that he would often marvel at this question. The restraint that God shows. Why God would allow men like Hitler and Stalin to do their worst. But Yancey goes on to write, But nothing compares to the self-restraint shown by Christ on the cross. So the cross is not proof that God cannot act. The cross is proof that God has not chosen to act in this particular way. When we look at the cross, we can see it either as proof of God's impotence or, as it truly is, the proof of His love. N.T. Wright, uh, he tells us that the power of this world is the power of violence. It's the ability to inflict pain and suffering in order to force others into our will. But the power of the cross is totally different. It's the power of agape, which we usually translate as love, but we are told that this English word love really fails to do the term agape, fails to do it justice. Wright tells us that agape is the multidimensional, all-embracing energy that sweeps us off our feet, that totally transforms. And the cross is the fullest expression of God's agape, God's love. It can be defined as pure, willful, sacrificial love that intentionally desires another's highest good. God's agape love demands that He express a totally different type of power. Not a power that crushes His enemies, but a love that transforms His enemies. God is love, pure love, total love, the very essence of His holiness. And this means that God desires the good even of those that hate Him. God's love is His character. You know, it's an outpouring of who He is. Love is God Himself. So when God is present, love is manifested. God wants the best for those who hate Him, those who are opposing Him those who despise Him, even these, God desires their best. Really, God has no enemies. When we are opposed to God, when we are hostile to God, this hostility is on our part. It's not on God's part. And God's love demands that He respond in a different way. We can see this through a saying that's attributed to Abraham Lincoln. He is finishing up the Civil War, a war that had left hundreds of thousands of Union soldiers either dead or maimed for life. 
And many in the North felt that Lincoln was being too lenient on the South. And one day, a woman really took him to task for this. She tells him, don't you realize these are our enemies? And Lincoln is said to have responded, how can I better destroy my enemies than by making them my friends? God has no enemies. There's no one that God wants to see destroyed that he wants to write off. Ezekiel 3 or 33:11 tells us God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. 1 Timothy 2:4 tells us God wants all men to be saved. 2 Peter 3:9 God does not desire that anyone should perish. When we were fighting our wars in Afghanistan, the US military soon realized that we had the sophisticated weapons. We had the military technology to really totally overwhelm any kind of organized resistance that the Afghanistan military could put up. But we soon realized this was not enough. We could bomb Afghanistan back to the Stone Age, and we still would not win this conflict. So the military had to begin a campaign that they called winning hearts and minds. They had to convince the average Afghani person that we were working for them, not against them. That was the only way we would win this war. Now, both the Old Testament and the New Testaments, they confidently affirm to us that God is both creator and redeemer. In fact, Scripture tells us that God was a Redeemer even before He was a Creator, that God had established a plan of redemption before the world was even created. 2 Timothy 1.9 tells us that God saved us, called us with a holy calling, according to His grace given in Christ before the world began. So, these two aspects of God cannot be separated. God as Creator and God as Redeemer. Now, as Creator, God has the power and the right to blot out evil men. God created them. He can certainly annihilate them if He chose. But this would not be true to His nature as Redeemer. Be, uh, but uh, there's a quote that says, But certain that the Creator is also the Redeemer. The Old and New Testaments affirm that for redemption to succeed, God must act on behalf of all that He created. He must accomplish the redemption of all. Otherwise, salvation is redefined as God picking through a trash pile. This was written by Al Truesdale. And so his point is, God doesn't just pick out those He wants and leave everyone else to perish. God is wanting to bring all men to repentance. 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul writes, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Verses 23 to 25, Paul goes on to say, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so Paul, again, over and over, describes the cross as the power of God. What we see as weakness is stronger than any human strength. M. Scott Peck writes, 
The only ultimate way to conquer evil is to let it be smothered within a willing, living human being. When it is absorbed there like blood in a sponge, it loses its power and goes no further. So the power of God is demonstrated by His ability to accomplish His will, to accomplish His will in any and every situation. And His will is not to obliterate us, but to redeem, to transform, to draw us to Himself. So Paul's message, when you see the suffering around you, when you see evil men at work and you don't feel that God is doing anything about it, look back to the cross. The cross is the ultimate display of God's power expressed through God's love. The cross proves beyond a doubt that God loves you. If God was willing to give you His Son, His most precious possession, you can be confident He will give you all things. Paul's final word to us from this chapter. He says, We can be confident that our present sufferings will result in future glory. Paul says, I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. So Paul is telling us the suffering that we are going through is very real, but it's there for a purpose. It doesn't show that God is impotent. It doesn't show that God is not uh, all good. It's there for a reason. God is accomplishing His purpose. And really, Paul's message can be summed up by the children's prayer that we learn. God is great. God is good. Jesse Jackson ran for president in 1988, and he had a slogan that he used, Keep Hope Alive. And that's Paul's message for us from Romans 8. We are to keep hope alive. Paul writes, For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Uh, Eli Wiesel wrote a number of books about his experience as a prisoner of the Nazis. And he was held at Auschwitz, the concentration camps. And he writes about one particular experience that he had in the camps. One day, he witnesses three elderly Jewish scholars. They actually form a rabbinic court of law. They put God himself on trial. They indict God for all of the evil of the Nazis. And then, acting as lawyers, they lay out the case, both for and against how God has behaved. They deliberate for a long time, and finally, they decide they have to find God guilty. But, Wiesel goes on to write, After the verdict was delivered, a long silence ensued. Finally, it was broken by an old scholar of the Talmud who declared, it's time. And then they all stood up to say the evening prayer. And his point is, they had indicted God. They couldn't see how God could be innocent in all this. And yet, they continued on with their prayers. And this is what Paul is telling us. We see the suffering around us. We're not going to understand it. We're not going to figure out what God is doing. But we can rest assured in who God is. 
We see this same thing in the book of Job. You know, this was the lesson that Job learned himself. Uh, In Job, we have really the ultimate expression of suffering, except for Christ. You know, it's hard for us to find someone who suffered more than Job did. And he suffered without knowing why. What's interesting is the end of the book of Job, God speaks to Job. But God never explains himself. God doesn't tell Job why. Instead, God simply describes to Job who God is. He tells Job about himself. So Job is not given any reason for what has happened to him. And listen to how he responds. Without knowing anything more than he did at the beginning of the book, his attitude toward suffering is entirely different. In Job chapter 42, Job responds, Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. And then he goes on to say, My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. We know how the story ends. We know that Job is restored, that Job, in fact, ends up more blessed than he was at the beginning of the book. But when Job says this, Job didn't know how the story would turn out. Job was still suffering. His children were still dead. His wealth was still gone. His body was still ruined. He was still in incredible pain. And as far as Job knows, this is how his life will continue. But Job is okay with that because he has met God. He's convinced the reality of who God is. He is convinced that he can trust God, come what may. And that's Paul's message to us. Suffering is real. Paul doesn't sugarcoat that. But suffering is part of what God is doing. And we can rest in assurance of what God is accomplishing. We can look at the cross itself and understand the power and the love of God. Let's close with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your blessings to us, your nearness to us. We thank you for this word that we've heard today, the confidence we have in you, knowing that we don't understand everything that happens to us. We don't understand the suffering that goes on around us, but we do know who you are, and we can be confident in you. We give you the praise and the glory in your name. Amen.